On this week's edition of New York Now, state lawmakers approve new gun laws and protections for abortion in the final days of this year's legislative session. We'll get into that and more with Karen DeWitt from New York State Public Radio and Michael Gormley from Newsday. And later, an update on the state's rollout of legal marijuana sales. Plus, a new edition of On the Bill. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. It's been a very long six months, but this year's legislative session in Albany is finally over. If you don't know, New York's legislative session runs from January to June every year. And this year, it's been jam-packed with a lot of new policy and spending out of Albany. We saw changes to bail reform, a new state ethics agency, deeper investments in areas like childcare and home care, and a lot more in the state budget. That passed in April, and there was still more on the table over the last few weeks, but two big issues prompted by national and local headlines rose to the forefront, guns and abortion. Take a look. In the final days of this year's legislative session, lawmakers arrived in Albany with a to-do list. At the top were new gun laws after the recent mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas, and new abortion protections as the Supreme Court considers a reversal of Roe v. Wade. Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins. This is a session where we, we've never taken our eyes off the ball. We continue to make sure that New Yorkers and their needs are the center of what it is we do. On abortion, new laws in New York will grant new legal protections for people who come here from another state to have the procedure and the providers who perform them. Those providers will be protected from claims of medical misconduct for providing abortions to those from out of state. And those patients will have a new defense in New York against extradition and litigation if their home state bans the practice. Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas, a Democrat from Queens, is a supporter of those ideas. And we want to ensure that any person coming to New York to get care or any doctor providing care for someone out of state um, will be protected in accessing that care and to ensure that it's not criminalized. Republicans were largely against those ideas, with almost unanimous opposition from that side of the aisle. Assemblymember David DiPietro is a Republican from Western New York. You have your opinion, I have mine. And I'll stand very firm on my belief that this is nothing but murder. On guns, lawmakers struck a deal on a package of new laws after the recent mass shootings in Buffalo and Texas. The age to buy a semi-automatic rifle in New York will now be raised to 21 and buyers will have to get a license. Local and state police will now be required to tell a judge if someone shows signs of danger to themselves or others under the state's red flag gun law. The judge would then decide if that person can safely own a gun or not. Senator James Skoufis sponsored that bill. Uh, you know, we, we, we do want to take away some of that discretion and err on the side of caution, where if you know, there are certain trigger points that are seen by law enforcement, that a red flag has to be considered, not may be considered. 
Other new laws will require tighter tracking of recovered or seized guns, ban the sale of body vests to the general public, and chart a path for micro-stamping that would require guns to print a small serial code on every fired round that would link back to its owner. And it will now be a crime to make a threat of mass harm in New York. And social media companies will now have to create clear policies for monitoring and addressing hateful conduct. Assemblymember Pat Fahey is a Democrat from Albany. And we also know, especially after Buffalo, we know that some are very aggressive, took down posts within 10 minutes, others it was hours. So we've got to have that clear and concise policy of this hateful speech, and we have to have a reporting mechanism. So businesses, we're not telling them how to do it, we're telling them they must. Republicans came out against new gun laws. State Republican Chair Nick Langworthy said that state and federal officials should instead make deeper investments in mental health programs. Everyone wants to jump on new gun laws, but we have to get to the root cause of why are young men, you know, full of extreme hate in their hearts, killing people in, in, in a drastic fashion like this? Why, why are these tragedies happening? Lawmakers also tied up some loose ends in the final days of session. New York City Mayor Eric Adams got mixed results on two of his top priorities. A controversial tax abatement program for housing developers was left to expire. But lawmakers agreed to extend a law that gives the mayor of New York City total control over city schools for another two years. Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins again. We will continue to work with the mayor uh, and to, to help the you know New York City school children and every child, frankly, uh, get a quality education. And so, you know, I think, I, think, I, think it'll be, I think it'll be fine. We will continue to be partners uh, in order to get the great outcomes we want. But other items didn't gain enough support to pass. A bill that would have spelled out new eviction protections didn't have the votes. And changes to the state's criminal justice laws, including parole reform, couldn't gain support. Both issues are expected to come up again next year when lawmakers return to Albany. The new legislative session will begin in January. And that brings us to Friday morning when we tape New York Now. Let's break down the week that was and look ahead with Karen DeWitt from New York State Public Radio and Mike Gormley from Newsday. Thank you both for being here. Nice to be here. On this wonderful Friday morning. Right. So as we speak, the Senate has wrapped up for the year. The Assembly is still voting. Something that happened overnight that I want to start with, really interesting, is the state is uh, possibly, the Senate and the Assembly passed a bill that will put a two-year moratorium on something called Crypto mining, for our viewers that may not be familiar, it's basically you use computers and you solve math problems and you get Bitcoin. That's the simplest way that I can explain it. <laughs> that's right. And the, it uses a lot of energy. That's the that is the key thing that's been very controversial about it. And the crypto mining companies have been repurposing old coal mining plants. They don't yeah. use coal anymore, but they use natural gas. And there's one on Seneca Lake that's controversial. They want to do one in North Tonawanda. And it uses a lot of power. And there's a concern when we're trying to get a handle on climate change 
that all this power is being used. And I think that's what finally put it over the edge in the Senate, which was hesitating as late as uh, Thursday afternoon about whether they would do that or not. Yeah, I think I woke up to the news that it had passed the assembly. It, when I went to sleep last night, it was still not quite there. And then, uh, and I should say, Mike, I want to ask you about this. This really rarely happens. We usually You're by right. this time, we know what's going to pass and there's no big surprises. Mm -hmm. uh, take me behind the scenes of what might have happened. Well, there's been, uh, you're right, this, this rarely happens, but you know, we've, we've had cases of this before. What can happen at the end of session or just before the, the budget is adopted in, on April 1, uh, you can get an influx of very important people pushing for this. And this is what happened here. Environmental groups are saying that the they're criticizing the legislature for not doing more on climate change. Um, and then they sort of, in the last two days, focused on this, this issue. Um, and they pushed it hard. And the legislature, who, in fairness, the, the Democrats support this sort of thing, but it became imperative for them going into the elections here in the fall to have some big win for the environmental um, people because that, that motivates the base, and that becomes a very important issue. Um, so it, it's unusual, but it, but it has happened before, and it's a good lesson for grassroots people that they can apply pressure right at the end, and sometimes it'll come through. Oh, well, yeah. There, well, there also was the you know, so-called big, ugly deal. Yeah. Uh, Governor Hochul didn't engage with legislative leaders to trade, I'll trade you this, I'll trade for that. Mostly they focused on reacting to the U.S. Supreme Court, potentially striking down Roe v. Wade and the mass shootings in Buffalo and Texas. And that seemed to dominate uh, the end of the session. They got agreements on all those bills pretty easily. And it just seemed like I thought all the rest of the stuff was going to fall off the table because there was so little talk of it. But I, Mike's right. I in that situation, thought. if you're if you're a savvy lobbyist like a lot of the environmental uh, lobbyists are, you can get in and just convince a few people and, you know, you get a win. Especially with crypto this year has poured so much money into this effort. Right. I mean, Everyone, every, every lobbying firm in Albany has a client right now that is crypto, is what somebody told me. PR firms in Albany have clients that are crypto. They really didn't want this to go through. And I think you're right, Mike. It's a really good lesson about how the little guys can somehow come through at the last <laughs> minute, especially with some of these newer lawmakers who are more willing to listen to them than the lobbyists from these big industries. But, but the big question is, is uh, Governor Kathy Hochul going to sign it? Exactly. She's been pretty much on the fence, and the unions that want more crypto mining have endorsed her, and she's got a primary coming up in a few weeks. So yeah. that, I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on her. What is she going to do about this bill? Now, I want to turn to guns and abortion because you mentioned the primary. Mm. Do you think, Karen, that that helps her in the primary? I don't know if she's necessarily in danger. I will say that right. much. But she supports these new gun laws. She supports the new abortion protections that the legislature passes. Presumably, she's going to sign them. We will wait to see when that happens. Does that give her a boost? Oh, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. The Democratic primary voters, these are big issues, probably even more than moderates or Republicans might be more concerned about inflation or other issues like that are, are definitely on the other side of maybe a lot of the abortion rights and gun control. Yeah, it definitely gives her a boost. She's been pretty Teflon all along, though. I mean, nobody's yeah. talking about the corrupt ex-Lieutenant Governor Brian <laughs> Benjamin that she chose. Do you ever hear anything about the Buffalo Bills stadium deal that was such a, a big deal and such a horror that she agreed to spend all this money? So I think she's pretty well positioned going into this primary. I think so too. I think she hit a road bump at, in the budget when she introduced the criminal justice changes at the last minute and the Bills stadium. I think she had a few rough weeks there of getting some really tough questions about her, her governing style. But then in the past few weeks, really that's all kind of faded away 
way. And I think part of that is the national issues that have come forward that she's really come out strong on, especially with the shooting in Buffalo. I mean, yeah. she was there and then she had press conferences, really powerful words, that initial press conference where she uh, announced her support for stricter gun laws, where she was holding up things like bullets and magazines yeah. and, and really showing an understanding. It was real. I mean, yes. It came from the heart. Like, what a horrible thing to happen in your hometown. It wasn't yeah. just, you know, you could tell that she's definitely not posturing about right. this. The, the winds are clear for a primary, for both parties, really, because yes. they go into their base. And yes, absolutely, this is helping the Democratic base, because what the Democrats have to do is not just appeal to the left-leaning members. They have to get them out to vote. Yeah. So she'll, this will get her, get them out to vote for the primary. The concern is going to be, how do these play after after Republicans spend millions of dollars on TV ads in the fall. Um, because there's there's a concern out there that, that Governor Hochul and the legislature in particular is going too far to the left. And that's an argument Republicans have been making. Um, they were go Republicans are going into this year thinking it was going to be a Republican wave um, in November. Don't know if that's going to happen or not now because after the gun, after the, the mass shootings, after the wins in abortion and the threat to abortion rights, um, that may change. But, uh, you know, the primaries, it's, she's well positioned, but they have to be thinking about what's going to happen in November. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, too. I mean, Republicans have said, and I think that they are probably correct, that this is their best chance in 20 years <clears> to <throat> take the governorship and maybe other statewide offices with Lee Zeldin presumably as the nominee. We'll see that in a few weeks in the primary. Um, I just don't know. What do you think, Karen? Well, also, uh, President Biden, he just, even among people who support him, they're just not excited about him. They're not energized. He doesn't have that kind of power that, say, President Obama had or the polarizing power of former President Trump. So I think that that's part of it that depresses, uh, might depress Democratic turnout. And, and, you know, the other thing on the other side of the Hochul, she's Teflon, but she's also not polarizing. I think most people... Many people think, okay, she's okay. It's exciting to have a woman governor. Um, you know, I'm not like so upset that I'm going to go out and vote either for her or against her. So that could that could hurt her too if you think about it, right? You know, yeah, especially, especially if the Republicans can make a case that she's all friendly with Joe Biden. Yeah, she does have a a terrific demeanor for politics. It's an almost an an aw shucks kind of look. You know, she's has that upstate bearing and stuff. But she is a smart and shrewd politician. Yes. And those combinations can work really well. I mean, we saw that Bill Clinton, that worked for Bill Clinton and, and others who can have the, can mesh those talents. She's really been able to, I think in the past few months especially, I think, well, let me take it back to August. When she started in August, I think she did have some trouble getting started with speaking to, to crowds. I think that she did have some trouble there kind of finding the right words to say to give confidence to people. In the last few months, we've really seen that change. And especially, um, I'll bring it up again, her press conference down in New York City after the Buffalo shooting, it was really powerful to hear her go through step-by-step step everything and just her pacing. It seemed to really be appealing to people. And I think in this moment, a lot of people want action on this on some level. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it looks like for everybody. A lot of people say gun control. Other people will say mental health, as we just heard from state Republican Chair Nick Langworthy. Um, but also going into the fall, I have to wonder how criminal justice changes are going to play into the election, if they're going to play into at all. I mean, they did change bail reform this year again. Mm -hmm. Karen, what do you think? Does that follow her into you November know, It again? depends if we just keep having the gun violence, the crime spike. That's certainly an issue for Republicans that they can they can bring up. So it's hard to tell. I mean, we're talking now, what is it? It's June, right? So, it's, <laughs> what month it is. Yeah. so the election is, it's almost like half a year away. So like it could be like 
anything by then. We've just seen, especially New York State government, we've seen things blow up. I mean, at last year at this time, we would have said, well, when Andrew Cuomo goes for his fourth term. Yeah. So it's really hard to predict. I mean, if the general election were in a month, probably she would win. But a lot of things could happen. And we'll see how much the economy, inflation, gas prices. I know they uh, got rid of, uh, temporarily got rid of the state gas tax. I haven't looked at the pumps. I don't think it's made a difference yet. So I think there's just a lot of other stuff. It's it's really kind of an uncertain world right now, you know? That, that's a good point. You have to wonder how these national issues down the road, not to play on words down the road with the gasoline prices, mm. are going to play into all of this. Um, you know, as we go forward, a lot of people think that a lot of their lives are, are controlled by the federal government in a lot of spaces, spaces. But as you, as we all know, the state government does a lot of this in terms of state income tax, property taxes, all of that. We are out of time, unfortunately. We could talk about this all day. Right. And we'll see what the assembly does this afternoon. Mm -hmm. But Karen DeWitt from New York State Public Radio, Mike Gormley from Newsday, thank you both. All right, staying now at the state capitol with a new edition of On the Bill where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're talking about A4321. It's called something different, depending on where you stand on the bill. Supporters call it medical aid in dying. Opponents call it physician-assisted suicide. The bill would allow terminally ill patients with less than six months to live to receive medication from a doctor that would end their life. The patient would then decide when they would use it, if at all. But supporters say that's a choice that should be theirs to make. Stacy Gibson lost her husband to a terminal disease and said without that option, he suffered. So his only choice to end his suffering was to voluntarily stop eating and drinking. It took him 12 days to die, um, which I have to tell you is nothing that we in New York um, should allow anybody to go through. Opponents of the bill are against it for moral reasons and also have concerns over abuse. That debate will continue next year when lawmakers return to Albany. In the meantime, an update on New York's rollout of legal marijuana sales. Retail sales won't start until later this year, but the actual cannabis product is being grown right now. And there are a lot of questions that come with that. So for more on that, I spoke with Chris Alexander, who leads the state's new Office of Cannabis Management. Chris, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. So I will start with a question that's probably on everyone's minds that they want me to ask. When will recreational marijuana sales start in New York? Well, thankfully to the legislature and the governor and through the seating opportunity initiative, uh, we are on track to have adult use sales in the state before the end of the calendar year. So that'll be late fall uh, when we'll see supplies start to line the shelves of dispensaries that have been built out uh, by the state. And where are we in that process now? Are people actively growing right now? Uh, what, what phase are we in? Well, the office has, and the board has licensed uh, 52 conditional cultivators. These are individuals who have previously participated in the state's hemp program, all small farmers who are you know, really uh, growing great product uh, for the state, um, have been licensed conditionally to grow adult use uh, cannabis. And so we're really excited about the work that they've begun um, our office is hard at work drafting regulations for every bit of this program, from the cultivation side down to the dispensary and the whole supply chain included. And so that's where our office is focused on, as well as you know continuing to staff up and build out the necessary uh, capabilities to continue to oversee the full industry. 
So in sales do start, what should people expect to see in their communities? I know that some communities have opted out of retail marijuana sales, but what should people expect in terms of density of storefronts? What would we be seeing when those sales start? Well, you know, part of the benefit of, and I always say, part of the benefit of not going first is that we're able to learn lessons from other states. And so uh, we're going to be rolling out licenses, particularly dispensary licenses in waves. Uh, to allow for the state and the market to adjust. And so um, there's no cap on dispensary licenses in the state, um, but we know that the market will kind of stabilize after some time. And so we'll be focused on making sure there's not over-concentration of dispensaries and communities across the state, but at the same time uh, that folks do have access to highly regulated, high-quality products. And so um, you'll see, you know, dispensaries start to come online in the community, and hopefully uh, we have uh, ac real access for our patients and for consumers across the board um, as we grow and, and, and mature this industry in a, in a couple of years. Now, as you mentioned, the first licenses will go to people with past cannabis-related convictions, and that's caused a, a controversy for some people. Can you explain why the state wanted to go that route? Why should these licenses go to these people first? Absolutely, and really it's part of the cannabis law. It's, it's part of what's been uh, demanded of our office and, and required uh, as, as a component of the MRTA, the law that ended prohibition in the state. Um, it comes with it an acknowledgement that prohibition and its enforcement was always you know, uh, disproportionately um, done in certain communities. And so uh, part of what is included in that law is a requirement that those who've been impacted have a meaningful opportunity to participate. And so I do want to correct the record and, and make sure it's clear that you know, folks who have the convictions are included as one eligibility criteria point uh, for this initial opportunity. But the additional requirement is that folks have, ex have experience owning and operating a business um, and so what we think we'll find is not only those who've been most impacted at the front of the line, but those who've been impacted and still have gone on to build and run uh, successful businesses in the state of New York. You know, these, these folks are successful small business owners who begin these opportunities. They just happen to have been swept up uh, in the wave of enforcement um, related to cannabis prohibition. You know, you're right. Equity was a really important part of this law. Are there any other ways the state is trying to ensure equity in terms of the cannabis industry as you move forward? That's really a great question. And I think, you know, I would love to point right back to our farmers. You know, our, our um, farmers, distressed farmers are part of our equity definition as folks that otherwise would have been left out or left behind that we are taking a, a strong interest in making sure that they're included and are able to participate. And so the actual conditional cultivation licenses that we have handed out uh, 52 of and will continue to be handing out um, in the very near future um, really captures that, that component of our equity definition to ensure that small farmers have a meaningful place to participate here. Are also included in that equity def definition are service-disabled veterans, you know, beyond just those who've been impacted, are also service-disabled veterans who will also be trying to find ways, creative ways, to ensure have a meaningful way to participate in the industry that we're building. Now, there's one other concern that was brought up as we were debating this legislation before it passed uh, several years ago and leading up to it, is this concern about impaired drivers impaired by uh, cannabis, people who have used cannabis and then decided to get behind the wheel. So for people who may be worried about that, is the state taking any additional steps to ensure that that doesn't happen or that uh, police officers can identify when somebody is intoxicated by cannabis? Absolutely. And thanks for raising that. I mean, we, we've launched a couple weeks ago 
um, our cannabis conversation, public education campaign. And what that really is focused on is making sure folks understand basically what we did when we ended prohibition. Folks driving across the state have probably noticed uh, the billboards letting you know not to drive high or under the influence of cannabis. This education approach is one that we've learned or, and really leaned from uh, the, the Governor's Traffic Safety Committee, which is one of our closest partners here in maintaining road safety in the state. And they've emphasized how important education is in making sure that we uh, keep drivers from driving under the influence on our roads. And so we have already invested resources as a state in expanding the drug recognition expert program and the A-RIDE programs. These are programs that train officers to better detect substances uh, in, in the system of drivers. Um, and so we, we have invested significant resources and expanded those programs for the state, um, but also taking a strong education approach and folks can and join the cannabis conversation at cannabis.ny.gov, uh, but I'm sure they're seeing the ads on their TVs as well as on social media um, and the billboards on the highways uh, and, and letting them know that if they feel different, they will drive different. And so we're doing a little bit of both, of education and of making sure our law enforcement have the necessary resources. Now, one last question for you for people who may be interested in purchasing cannabis when it is at retail shops. Uh, we know in nearby states and other states who have legalized the drug, there are caps on how much you can actually buy at the store. Like in Massachusetts, for example, you can only buy 500 milligrams of, of edible cannabis products. Are we at the phase now where we're setting those regulations or is that still to come? We are at the phase where we're setting those regulations and, and not just uh, uh, the you know limitations, but in the way that the form, the manner, the packaging, the labeling, the way that these products are transitioning hands from a retail operation to the consumer. You know, one of the biggest uh, reasons for for legalizing cannabis was creating a better regulated product, improving public health outcomes, making sure that people are who who, have cho who are choosing to put cannabis in their bodies um, have a, a better. Uh, product that they're using. And so, you know, we are we're really deep in it now at this point in time, you can tell by the, the scruff uh, <laughs> uh, of, of, you know, analyzing what has been helpful in other states to create um, a better market um, and trying to see what's going to be most useful for New Yorkers who are interested in consuming cannabis. All right, Chris Alexander from the Office of Cannabis Management. Thank you so much for all of this information. We appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. And the state is now working on how cannabis products will be packaged, marketed, and tested. More on that soon. But we'll see you next week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.